Stephen Knight, screenwriter of the new blockbuster Allied, starring Brad Pitt and Marion Cotillard, joins me now on Pop Culture Confidential. Hi everyone, I'm Christina Yerling Biro. Welcome back to a new week of Pop Culture Confidential. Now, I really, really enjoy talking to screenwriters, and today I got to talk to one of the best and the busiest. British screenwriter Stephen Knight's first produced feature was the 2002 crime thriller Dirty Pretty Things, for which he was nominated for an Oscar. Other works have included Eastern Promises and the hugely popular BBC series Peaky Blinders, about to begin its fourth season. He also has a new series, Taboo, for FX, launching next year. But he's currently in theaters around the world with Allied, a World War II romantic spy thriller directed by the legendary Oscar-winning director Robert Zemeckis of Forrest Gump and Flight, for example. The film stars Brad Pitt and Marion Cotillard as two undercover spies placed on a dangerous mission together in Morocco in 1942. They fall in love, have a child, and just as they are living a semblance of a more normal life, are mortally set against each other when their identities are revealed. Heard a lot about you. Said you were beautiful. And good. Being good at this kind of work is not very beautiful. What are you doing? Testing you. The way you tested me. Do they trust you? I'm very good at pretending, Max. They're watching us. Now kiss me. What are Mr. Stephen Knight, thank you so much for being here. It's a pleasure. So um, I know that different projects can be in different phases, but I've never heard of anyone with so much in the pipeline as yourself. Besides <laughs> Allied that you've written and exec produced, you have the Stieg Larsson franchise girl, the girl in the spider web, the story of Carolyn Weldon yep. with Jessica Chastain, World War Z yep. sequel, Peaky Blinders new season, a new series, a JFK biopic. Now, are you like chained to a computer in a cellar? Do you do you need some assistance? Um, no, I don't know what it is. I've, some, I mean, some of it is that, like for example, the Catherine Weldon story, "Woman Walks Ahead," which we just finished filming. I wrote that, I think, about eight years ago. So it's a bit like fishing, where you write a script, you cast it out there, and you wait sometimes. Uh, and in Hollywood, it can take a while. Allied took thirty years, hearing the initial story to writing the script. But yeah, sometimes things all come come together at once but there is a lot on and I do tend to get up very very early to get things done so so your process is that nothing you're actually you write one thing at a time mostly in different phases of the project yeah I find the most effective way to write anything is in a burst a, a sort of an intense burst so I tend to think that something should come after two weeks you know something should be on the page that you can submit at least to yourself in two weeks so that you've got something there that you can then go back to, you can work on. But in my experience, if something's taking a long time, there's a reason, and it may be that something structurally is wrong. That's interesting. So you give yourself two weeks. I have My husband's a screenwriter, so I have to... And we live with things much longer than two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> no, the, the, the whole process obviously takes more, but, but the, the, the initial burst, which is where I think something other lives or dies is you know you, you get the idea and you just 
go with it and see where it goes. If it's something I'm doing for myself, I just see what happens on the page. And I think that's, it's much more fun. The, the amount of time, can that be frustrating? I know I've talked to many like, like Phyllis Nash. She talked about Carol taking 20 years and yeah. you talked about this one taking 30. How does that, does that affect you um, in your writing? No, I, what I think is that I would say to any writer that is do something, finish it, get it out there in whichever way you can and then do the next thing and don't wait. Because if you wait for the project you've just done to get a buyer, to get made, to get a director, you can wait a hell of a long time. So I think it's, as I said, like fishing, you get it out there, leave it and see what happens and see who goes, who goes for it. And it can take a while. Some, I mean, equally, like Amazing Grace or Locke, they were like six months from first writing the first word to actually starting to shoot. So it can be very quick as well. But you're okay about sort of letting your baby go for a while. Well, I think that's the that's the process that you have to deal with, if, especially if you're in the Hollywood studio system where you you submit the scripts and then you get notes and you do you know it's very structured, which is good. Um, and you know you do your three drafts and you do a polish, and then sometimes it may be given to another writer. Other times it will go straight to the director and you start working on you know how it's going to actually get shot. When it's my own thing that I'm going to direct, then the process for me is happier because you you keep complete control. But, you know, it's two different ways of doing the same thing. Let's talk a little bit about Allied. You said this story came to you 30 years ago. How did, how did that happen? I was um, working my way around the States, um, trying to earn enough money to get back to England and doing various odd jobs. And I lodged with someone who was a GI bride, British woman who had lived in America for a long time and she told me the story of her brother uh, who was an SOE operative in the Second World War who met and fell in love with a French operative and she had a baby and, and he asked special permission to bring her back to England and a year later he reported for work and was told that his wife was working for the Germans and that he had to go back and shoot her. So that story stuck with me because it was so shocking and so vivid. And I always knew it would make a great film. I, I didn't know how to expand the sort of the, the crisis point and how to, you know, make the opening not too different from the rest of it. But in the end, I was working on a different project with Brad Pitt and we were sitting in the garden of a hotel in London. And because I think because we were in London, we got talking about the war and the blitz and I told the story and Brad said, you know, we should do that. We should do that story. So that forced me to put some time aside to actually sit down and write it. You know, that that's what really gave it the, the energy, I suppose, to go to the next stage. Were you ever able to sort of verify this story 30 years later? No, in fact, the opposite. Any research, I've did a lot of research into the SOE, into, you know, a, a, a incredibly brave, heroic people who did that work, who went behind enemy lines. And any research I did about the German equivalent was that they didn't use female operatives, that they never penetrated British security. So according to history, it couldn't have happened. But they wouldn't say that, would they? Well, this is the thing. I mean, the question I ask is, I mean, when I was that age, when I was early 20s, I wasn't a writer or planning to be a writer particularly. So why would someone tell me this family story, which was told it was sort of like a skeleton in, in the cupboard and it was quite emotional? Why would someone make that up? So it's 
the mystery has intrigued me more than anything. Not finding it is is, is even more intriguing, I think. But do you know? Do you, uh, do you know if the family of this woman who told you the story is still around? No, I don't. No, I don't. I don't because it was. Uh, you know, I have had no contact since. and wouldn't know how to do that. Um, so the legendary director so Zemeckis, who has a very I think maybe a magical style. He tends it, it's very hard. Did you think he would fit your story when he came, was attached? Yeah, I mean because when someone of that stature decides to do your script, obviously it's very flattering, and he brings to it a certain cinematic formality, which I think is great. And you know the film is set in the forties, and I think the style of the film making has its roots in the forties, and I think the two go together well. So. It was a, you know, it was an, an excuse to to do the most amazing costumes and to make the sets look great and to do London in the Second World War in a way that it hasn't been done before. And Casablanca, no less. And well, again, that choice was deliberate because, you know, obviously you're never going to get close to a film like that, but you can nod to the era and to the style of filmmaking as well. So it's a bit of both, you know, it, it's the, the real place, but it's also the place in people's imagination. One of the things I think is interesting, I mean, now this is, of course, a spy movie and, and war and, and the betrayal between them is a thriller. But there is sort of an underlying thing about a betrayal that could be in any marriage, uh, things you find out yeah. between man and woman. Were you thinking about that a lot? Yeah, I think it's a very interesting situation which drives the whole thing, which is that in a situation where it's infidelity of the conventional sense, there is a response to that. But this is a betrayal that isn't that. And the point I was trying to make, particularly in the scene with the piano, is that she has betrayed him because of the war, because they are on opposite sides, but she does really love him and the baby, and he really loves her. So it's a question of love versus war, does love win and love wins? Because even though he knows she's done this, she's a soldier, he's he's betrayed people as a soldier, but he's been working behind enemy lines. And he decides that it's true that she really is the woman that he thinks she is, even though she's done things that have betrayed him. So it's not really exactly like an infidelity. But when we were talking through the script, we were saying, well, the closest any of us can imagine getting to this, because none of us are soldiers, is imagine an infidelity. And having to take a, a decision of staying or leaving or, or how to um, do yeah, this. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Or in this case, killing or not killing. Right, right. Which, of course, we hope we don't have to go that far. <laughs> no, exactly. But the, I know that you're now, I don't know how long you are in the process, but you're working on the next in the Dragon Tattoo franchise, of course, our big Stieg Larsson. Yeah. Um, have you looked sort of at, at Sweden and Swedish writing and, and have you come across anything particularly interesting that you want to bring into this? Yeah, I mean, I'm a big, I, I love Stockholm in particular and uh, have dealings increasingly with Scandinavian directors and writers because they're so good and they seem to be being produced from somewhere in Scandinavia on a regular basis. So uh, the atmosphere of Stockholm is something that really intrigues me and I think is very filmic. And I mean, I know it's Gamblerstan and it, it, it's the tourist area, but I've been beyond that as well and out into the wilds, and it is an incredibly atmospheric place. So I've tried, if possible, to get a bit of that fog and mist and snow and ice into the character of Lisbeth, which was there already, but and taking it on a little bit more and trying to explore 
the morality of what she does because you know now that hacking is such a live issue for everyone i'm hoping to in the story confront if you like the character of lizbeth with her own actions and say is this okay and yeah very exciting but this is very much a studio system script so it's a commission and you know I've, i've written my bit and then it's in the system the director's now working on it so we will see but i think it's going to be great i really do and where is World War Z in, in the process, the sequel? That is, I, I've done my drafts, mm-hmm. so they're there, and we just wanted to strike while the iron was hot on the success of the first one. But with something that huge, with a budget like that, it's, you know, it takes time to, to wrestle it into, into place. So that is in the, it's in development, as they say, but I think there is a scheduled date to start shooting. I don't quite know. But a lot of that is embargoed. We can't really talk about what happens. Or well, there's a lot of Stephen Knight coming in the future. We just have to sit there and wait. But, <laughs> but something that is happening closer, I, I, I would is Peaky Blinders, right? The next, the next yep. season. Your incredible show about that, um, which is also kind of a true. This is a bit of your own family story, is it not? That's right. My dad's uncles who were. Uh, because uh, uh, off-track gambling was illegal in the 20s, and his uncles were bookmakers and gangsters. And my mom, when she was eight or nine years old, they used to use children to take the bets. They, my mom would walk down the street with a basket of washing, and people would drop a code name, name of the horse, and sixpence into the washing basket, and then she'd take it to the bookie. So it, 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 I always listened to these stories as a kid and thought how amazing they were and dramatic and that sort of world and those sort of people were never featured in anything to do with any period drama. In Britain, it was always, you know, the upper middle class, the aristocracy. And I just thought this was a more interesting story. So I wrote it, obviously mythologized it, glamorized it, but really wanted to say, you can take an unfashionable regional city in Britain, look at the people there, and it's the Wild West. We're picky blinders. We're not scared of coppers. We will rid this city of his kind. Justice will be done. If you want to be part of my organization, you have to make sacrifices. I'm a businessman. I want to make my business successful. From now on, we do it my way. Well, I, I read, I, I think this is true that you said that you wanted it to be sort of from the eyes of a 10-year-old, that, that they were, they, exactly. these gangsters were more handsome, better dressed, scarier, larger than life. And I think you really succeeded. Yeah, I mean, it's not only one, it's, it's almost like my dad and mom were 10 years old when they saw it. Then when they told me I was 10, so it became even bigger and even more glamorous. And I didn't want to lose that. Right. I really wanted to maintain that mythology. Um, because, I mean, the, the family gangster epics that we film lovers know, I mean, it's a very strong sort of a genre in itself. Did you think a lot about uh, writing in that way? Yeah, I think that it, I try wherever possible not to not to take influence from other films or other TV shows and try where possible to source the material from things that I've heard in real life, stories that I've been told by people I've met, because I think it's a lot fresher if you do it like that. However, when you do a gang family, especially in the 20s, then you cannot avoid, you know, American gangster mythology in the same way as you can't avoid Western 
mythology. The, you know, the Wild West and, and the way cowboy and Indian films took the lives of effectively agricultural laborers in the 19th century and turned it into this huge genre. And I think you can't avoid it. And if, if there is any, you know, nod to anything, it would be The Godfather because why not? It's the, you know, it's it's the classic of of all of them. But what I wanted to do was was to take the stories I'd heard and the descriptions of the kind of people that I was given and see, put them on a page and see how they act, you know, and and look at their behaviour in a British context. So you can't avoid references, but. I try where possible to make 90% of it from things that I've heard. And there's some incredibly big fans of the show in this. Is is there any truth to to Bowie um, having some music in the coming series? Yeah, well, uh, we heard that he was a fan. Killian sent him his the cap that he wore in series one, and, and he sent back a photo of himself with razor blades in the peak. Okay. He sent that to Killian. And so we thought, well, he must, you know, he must like it. So... We approached his people about using some music, and they were very fast in coming back, very enthusiastic. His, I think, European business manager came to my house and played me the new album, which I was, I was astonished. And, of course, it was brilliant. And I said, yeah, we want to use that stuff. And then I think three days later, it was announced that he passed on. So mm. it was an amazing time. And we used, we used a track in the last series, and hopefully we'll be using more in the, in the next series. And another musician who, who, who likes you is, is Snoop Dogg. Will, be, will we hear any of his music coming up? I, I don't know whether that's going to ever fit. I mean, I think he's brilliant. As I'm sure you've read that I had a three-hour meeting with him and he was talking about his life and, and you know how he got introduced into gang culture. And it was fascinating. And he's a big fan. Uh, I think it may be a, a leap <laughs> a to leap, get yeah. that music. Try. to be into Peking. I know, I'll try, yeah. Maybe in a trailer. <laughs> um, and what can you tell us about Taboo? Taboo is uh, starring Tom Hardy, and um, it's set in 1814 in London. Um, and it's directed by Christoph Nyhome. And it's basically a fictional story set in a period of history that I find really fascinating when Britain was at war with the United States and with France. And it was a time of great turmoil in London so I wanted to throw a character into that turmoil and basically set him up to play all of the different forces against each other to, to either triumph or, or not and the result has been fantastically well received and it, it looks fun, looks beautiful and can't wait, it's on screens in Britain January 10th I think and in the US January 10th as well um, Are you? Do you like particular period pieces or is more your speed? Um, not really. I mean, contemporary is great, but, but it's almost as if you've got 2,000 years of life stretched out before you don't have to just do what happened in the last 10 years. Do you know what I mean? And it can be, if you scour history for characters, sometimes you come across people that you just think that somebody's got to do something about that. But contemporary is great. It's certainly cheaper to make because you don't have to um, use so much CGI. Um, and last question, one of the things that's the oddest on your CV is that you co-created Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. I know. <laughs> How did that come about? <laughs> Why? <laughs> Something I'm very, very proud of still. No, I was working in television at the time in a, at a production company called Celador, and sort of on the floor, 
that I worked on, we were writing comedy and drama and things, and Flora Burvick's game show. So we just had to walk up a set of stairs to present an idea. And myself and two others that devised a couple of game shows that had done well in Europe. And then we came up with another one, and we thought it was just going to be another one, and it just went mad. And who wants to be a millionaire? You know, it still runs all over the world. So that was great. It was really good fun. It was a great time. Do you have, like, a cut of that running all over the world so we can see more of your great movies? <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, yes. I see. No, I mean, the, the, the business side of it was great. Okay, good, because that must be a huge thing. Um, This was fun. Thank you very much, Mr. Knight, and I can't wait to see all your projects coming up, and thank you for taking your time. Thanks a lot. Thank you. See you. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much to Mr. Stephen Knight. Allied is in theaters now. You can visit our website, popcultureconfidential.com, or uh, give us your thoughts on Twitter at podpopculture. This show was edited by Mua Larsson, the theme music by Carl Boy, and produced by René Wittestedt and myself. I'm Christina Jörling-Biro. Thank you so much for listening. Hey friends, this is Jim Knight, former 21-year hard rock executive turned best-selling author and top 10 keynote speaker. And I'm Brant Menzwar, former frontman of Hollywood's most dangerous band turned top 10 motivational speaker and best-selling author. We host the how-to podcast, Thoughts That Rock, where we talk to rock stars, athletes, CEOs, astronauts, and even next door neighbors who share their expertise and opinions. Together, we tackle the most interesting and challenging topics of today. Whether you want to learn how to become more confident, how to deal with anxiety at work, or how to write a hit song, or use Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu in life, we've got hundreds of episodes to help amp up your life and move you forward. Subscribe to Thoughts That Rock wherever you listen to podcasts, and check out evergreenpodcast.com for more information.